Hey, thanks so much for joining us for our online service. My name is Matt. I'm the lead pastor of Central. And here we are in my living room today. A couple weeks ago, uh, you joined me in my dining room. This is like a really slow, lame, pastor version of Cribs. Right? If this quarantining goes on long enough, eventually you will have seen my whole house. I hope the Wi-Fi is good in my shed. Anyways, I'm uh, really glad you're joining us. We are starting a brand new series called Hashtag Blessed. And you may have noticed in the little bumper video that led into the sermon, there were a bunch of pictures. Those pictures were all pulled from social media pages that had the hashtag blessed attached to them. And it's actually often tragic to watch the ways people seek out the good life. If you judge by social media photos with that hashtag blessed, uh, you will see definitions ranging from fancy new car, hashtag blessed, an exotic vacation, hashtag blessed, gym selfies for some reason, hashtag blessed. Uh, an a extravagant walk-in closet, hashtag blessed. Even a delicious looking donut, hashtag blessed. Now, there's a lot about Christianity that resonates in broader culture, such as social justice, but you don't have to look any further than believing the Sermon on the Mount as truly the blessed life to find where there's disconnect. When Jesus says it's about self-denial, not self-fulfillment, that's completely paradoxical in our world today. It is widely agreed that the Sermon on the Mount was the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest person who ever lived. And the sermon itself begins with eight Beatitudes, so we'll spend the next eight weeks looking at each one of them. And these beautiful attitudes frame the characteristics of the kingdom of heaven life. Or put another way, the good life according to Jesus. This word beatitude, uh, we've probably heard it a lot, but don't really know what it means. It comes from a Latin word beatus, which best translates as blessing. There are lesser English words that get at uh, this idea of a beatitude, but, but blessing probably does the best. Other words that, that, that get there somewhat are happy or fortunate or to have approval or to flourish in life. Ultimately, to be blessed by God is the very definition of the good life. To receive the approval of God brings ultimate and sustainable happiness. It brings flourishing. It brings blessing. I think happiness and where to find it is the great question confronting humanity. It's the great sought after entity. And Jesus sat down on a hillside in front of a crowd of disciples, opened his mouth and delivered the Beatitudes, the good life according to Jesus happiness and where to find it according to God. So we'll spend the first half of our time focused on an introduction to the Beatitudes generally, and then we'll spend the second half of our time looking at the first of eight Beatitudes. So first we need to understand some things 
about the Beatitudes generally. And I get some of the things on this list from the great Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a 20th, 20th century preacher in London, whose writings on the Sermon on Mount are, are just beautiful. Here's the first thing. They are for all followers of Jesus. They're not just for some super Christians. They're for all followers of Jesus. The Beatitudes are a description of what every Christian is meant to be. They're a description of character. We're all meant to exemplify everything contained in them. And I think how you respond to the Beatitudes actually says a lot about you. Let me, let me read them for you and, and note how you respond to them. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What do you think about that list? How do you respond? Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, My immediate reaction, anybody who hears the Beatitudes read, My immediate reaction to these Beatitudes proclaims exactly what I am. If I feel they are harsh and hard, if I feel that they are against the grain and depict a character and type of life, life which I dislike, I'm afraid it just means I am not a Christian. If I do not want to be like this, I must be dead in trespasses and sins. I can never have received new life. But if I feel that I am unworthy and yet I want to be like that, well, however unworthy I may be, if this is my desire and my ambition, there must be new life in me. I must be a child of God. I must be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven and of God's dear son. D.A. Carson put it a little more succinctly when he wrote, if God's blessing means more to us than the approval of loved ones, no matter how cherished, or of colleagues, no matter how influential, then the Beatitudes will speak to us very personally and deeply. So, how do you respond to these Beatitudes? There may be some confusion about what they all mean, but we're going to spend the next eight weeks unpacking each one together. I pray that your heart would be warmed and your deepest desire would be the good life according to Jesus. Second, all followers of Jesus are meant to manifest all of them. Therefore, all Christians and all Christians are meant to manifest all of them. In this way, they are like the fruit of the Spirit that we see in the Bible and unlike the gifts of the Spirit we see in the Bible. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. I think I got that. Right, kids? Did I get that? The fruit of the Spirit, all Christians are meant to exemplify all of them. Even in a quarantine, even in a time of isolation, we are to practice and be growing in patience. Feeling a little tough right now. Feeling a little tough right now. But over time, all Christians grow in all the fruit of the Spirit. The gifts of the Spirit, on the other hand, the Holy Spirit dispenses as he 
wills, whether it's a particular gift of hospitality or a particular gift of evangelism or healing or teaching or giving or mercy or even administration. Glad I don't have that gift. But see, each of the Beatitudes is like the fruit of the Spirit and unlike the gifts of the Spirit in that regard. All Christians are to live out all the Beatitudes. And that makes sense because actually each Beatitude demands all the others. Like you can't be pure in heart without hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Or you can't be a peacemaker without being merciful. And so they all tie into one another, build upon and, and, and need each other. Third, none of these descriptions refer to a natural tendency. Sometimes we feel like, oh, you know, I know someone who's poor in spirit or, or someone who's meek or someone who's the peacemaker in the family. Oh, you know, they're the peacemaker in the family. And, and there are some natural tendencies that lead us into some like characteristics, but that's not actually what's going on in the Beatitudes. Each one of these is actually completely produced by grace alone and the work of the Holy Spirit. They're not descriptions that match the natural temperaments of some, but the dispositions that are produced by grace alone. And because they're the product of the Holy Spirit, they're possible for all believers. The beauty of the gospel is that it can take the proudest person by nature and make them someone who is poor in spirit. Martin Lloyd-Jones actually said at this point in his commentary, uh, there has never been a naturally prouder man than John Wesley. John Wesley was a famous preacher, theologian. His brother Charles wrote some famous hymns. And Lloyd-Jones says, there's never been a naturally prouder man than John Wesley, but he became a man who was poor in spirit. Because it's the work of the Holy Spirit that can do that in us. Fourth, these descriptions indicate the essential difference between believers and unbelievers. I was getting at this in my intro, but I'll, but I'll say it again. The world's age of authenticity believes in individualism, self-confidence, self-mastery, and even self-righteousness. The follower of Jesus believes in denying self and taking up their cross. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the 20th century theologian, pastor, professor in Germany at the time of the Nazi regime, famously said, when Christ calls a man to follow him, he calls him to come and die. This stands in stark contrast to the world's ways of affairs. See, the world's Beatitudes, we've heard Jesus' Beatitudes, Jesus' way to the good life. What would the world's Beatitudes be? I think they'd probably be something like this. Blessed are the driven, for theirs is the kingdom. Blessed are those who are true to themselves, for they will be happy. Blessed are the comfortable, for they will never have to sacrifice. Blessed are the peacemakers, except when they're called on when I'm called on to make peace. And to borrow a line from rapper Kendrick Lamar's song, American Soul, blessed are the liars, for the truth can be awkward. See, Jesus is a confrontation with the values of our culture because believers and unbelievers are fundamentally different in what they admire. 
Kent Hughes referred to the Sermon on the Mount this way, no other section of scripture makes us face ourselves like the Sermon on the Mount. It is the antidote to the pretense and sham that plagues Christianity. What he's saying is that the world beatitudes that I just listed off have, have weaseled their way into the church and been embodied as much or more than the beatitudes that Jesus gave his disciples. And so the great harm then is what happens to the church when the world comes into the church and the church becomes worldly. The greatest eras in church history, hands down, it's easy to see, have always been when the distinction between the church and the world has been clear-cut to all. It's been obvious to all. That's how revival comes. That's when revival comes. There's this error that gets made by a lot of churches, a lot of Christians, a lot of Christian organizations. It's this. If, if we can be as much like the world as possible but offer some Jesus, that's how the world will listen. But that's a myth. The truth is, when the church is distinctly different from the world, that's when she attracts it. But are we? Like, which era of the church are, are we in? What sort of approach do you have to living as a follower of Jesus in the world? An important question for each one of us as we begin this series is this, which beatitudes will mark your life, the world's or Jesus? Because only one set leads to the good life and it's, it's not actually the, the answer we assume or that seems to, to be more naturally wired in us. It's the one worked in followers of Jesus by grace. Fifth, followers of Jesus belong to a different kingdom. Kingdom of heaven is, is, is Matthew, the gospel writer's customary expression for what other New Testament writers call the kingdom of God. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other places, it says theirs is the kingdom of God. And so just to clarify, Matthew was like many Jews in his day, and he's writing to a Jewish audience who'd avoid using the word God, considering it too holy, too set apart to even be said. So they'd use alternative words like heaven. So when you hear kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God, they're synonymous with each other. Now, the first and last Beatitudes have the same promise. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It says to start, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then in verse, 11, uh, verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, right? The, the bookends to, to all the Beatitudes are this, promise of the kingdom of heaven. And so it's a way of saying that Matthew, the gospel writer, is putting it on both ends to say the theme from beginning to end of the Beatitudes is the kingdom of heaven. So, so what is it? What is the kingdom of heaven? It's this, wherever the reign of Jesus is being manifested, the kingdom of God is there. The kingdom has come, is here, and is to come. It was here when Jesus was exercising his authority in his earthly ministry in breaking the kingdom of God. It's here in us now because we're in the kingdom and the kingdom is in us by the Holy Spirit. And it will come when his rule and reign will finally and completely be established throughout the heavens and the earth. 
Sometimes the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is referred to as already and not yet breaking in in the ministry of Jesus, dwelling in the people of Jesus, but will finally come, ultimately come when he returns and, and, and brings heaven fully, completely to earth. The kingdom of God is present at this moment in followers of Jesus. He's the king. He's our king. And therefore, we are followers of Jesus belonging to a different kingdom. N.T. Wright put it in a helpful way when he wrote, The life of heaven, the life of the realm where God is already king, is to become the life of the world, transforming the present earth into the place of beauty and delight that God always intended. That's what's coming. But then listen to this. And those who follow Jesus are to begin to live by this rule here and now. So, let me read our text this morning. It's this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, we've spent some time talking about the word blessed, and we've spent some time talking about the words kingdom of heaven and what they mean, and we will continue to round those out as we, as we keep going with this series. So let's focus the remainder of our time on this phrase, the poor in spirit. So, I sometimes find it helpful. Let's, let's talk about what it is by first talking about what it isn't. So, what poverty of spirit isn't, first, it's not false humility. You, you know false humility, right? It's somebody who actually steals all the attention, draws it to themselves, but they do it in a manner where they're like, oh, I'm a nobody. I'm, I'm, I'm just this, you know, lowly me. Hey, everybody, it's just me. And I'm, I'm not much of, of anything, you know, like that's that false humility. They're drawing the attention, but they're doing it through some sort of mechanism. Like, oh, I, I, I'm, I'm, wait. hey, everyone, I'm, I'm nothing, but hey, I'm here, but I'm less than all you. I just want you to know that. C.S. Lewis talks about this in Mere Christianity. He wrote, to even get near humility, true humility, even for a moment, is like a drink of cold water to a man in the desert. Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he is a nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking of himself at all. That's the key. See, if true humility is not thinking of yourself at all, then false humility is constantly referencing yourself, even if it's in a pejorative way. So poverty of spirit isn't false humility. Second, it's not a sense of being of no value. A poverty of spirit doesn't mean you think of yourself as nothing or, or that, that you have this sense or that the reality even is that you are nothing. That's not what poverty of spirit means. And we know this because of a couple really significant uh, biblical truths. One is this. We, humanity, were made in the image of God. Significance is attached to that. Second, Jesus died in our place. Both of those realities prove that we're of great value. 
So it is not a sense of being of no value. Third, poverty of spirit isn't economic poverty. Now there's been a lot of debate about this because in Luke's gospel, when he is telling of the Beatitudes, he simply writes in Luke 6, blessed are the poor. And so while Jesus emphasized ministry to the poor and challenged our attachment to wealth, he doesn't require everyone to take a vow of poverty. Nicodemus was a wealthy man who cared for Jesus' body after death. Jesus had wealthy women follow him in his ministry and helped fund the ministry. He did look at a rich young ruler whose idol was his wealth and said, sell all you have and follow me. And the man couldn't. But Jesus, we see on balance as we read, he doesn't require everyone to take a vow of poverty. I read a helpful story that I think can help frame this whole discussion. From a number of years ago, uh, one of England's distinguished judges attended a church that had three mission churches under its care. And on the first Sunday of the new year, all the members of the missions came to the big city church for a combined communion service. In those mission churches, which were located in the slums of the city, were some outstanding cases of conversions, thieves, burglars, and so on but all knelt side by side at the communion rail. On one such occasion, the pastor saw a former thief kneeling beside the aforementioned judge of the High Court of England. After his release, the thief had been converted and became a Christian worker. Yet as the judge and the former thief knelt together, neither seemed to be aware of the other. After the service, the judge happened to walk out with the pastor and said, Did you notice who was kneeling beside me at the communion rail this morning? The pastor replied, yes, but I didn't think you did. The two walked along in silence for a few more moments when the judge declared, what a miracle of grace. The pastor nodded in agreement. Yes, what a marvelous miracle of grace. Then the judge asked, but to whom do you refer? The pastor responded, why to the conversion of that convict? But I was not referring to him. I was thinking of myself, explained the judge. Surprised, the pastor replied, You were thinking of yourself? I don't understand. Yes, the judge went on. It was natural for the burglar to respond to God's grace when he came out of jail. His life was nothing but a desperate history of crime. And when he saw the Savior, he knew there was salvation and hope and joy for him. He understood how much he needed that help. But I... I was taught from the earliest infancy to be a gentleman, that my word was my bond, that I was to say my prayers, go to church, receive communion. I went up to Oxford, took my degrees, was called to the bar, and eventually ascended to judge. My friend, it was God's grace that drew me. It was God's grace that opened my heart to receive Christ. I'm a greater miracle of grace. Here's what the judge is getting at. When our circumstances help us realize our depravity, our need, that is a help in drawing us needy to God. But when we live in affluence, and when we are told over and over again in a culture like ours, you can do it. Just believe in yourself and you can do everything. You can do anything. That's where the danger lies, in the midst of the affluence. And so there is a truth that we need to pick up on. There's such truth that affluence clouds so many people from an understanding of their need of God. That's true, and Jesus speaks of that. But blessed 
are the poor isn't what's being said here. We know this. It's not what Luke's getting at either. We know this because there are those who are economically poor who aren't spiritually wealthy. Economic poverty does not equate necessarily to spiritual wealth. Poverty of spirit is its own thing. So, let's talk about that. It refers to poverty, poverty of spirit, or bankruptcy. I like, I like it a little bit better, the word bankruptcy, but a spiritual bankruptcy. That's the point. Poverty of spirit, spirit is a spiritual bankruptcy, this tremendous awareness of our, of our utter nothingness as we come face to face with God. We bring nothing with us that merits us anything before God. But that is the human way that we think we bring things that merit us favor with God. We think belonging to a certain family or a certain nation or temperaments or personalities of ours or positions of power or status or money or education or conduct and morals that rise above others around us. We think we bring those things that merit us something before God. But poverty of spirit is an absence of all of that. It is to look to God in total submission and utter dependence for grace and mercy. To be poor in spirit means to be realistic about our own spiritual inability and inadequacy. When we understand that we're completely devoid of spiritual ability, that's when we turn to God in total surrenders. That's why poverty of spirit is so critical for everything else in the spiritual life. Because it's only when we realize we come with nothing that Jesus can pour in upon our bankruptcy his riches. Let me show you because the, the Bible is filled with those who have poverty of spirit. And I think it'll help us understand it better. Gideon, in, in the book of Judges, we see Gideon. He famously delivered Israel with just 300 men. 300 soldiers defeated these great armies. But only that only happened after he made this confession to God. Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. Before David became the greatest king of Israel, listen to the posture of his heart. He said to Saul, who am I and who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? And then later he said to God, who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me this far? Do you hear the poverty of spirit? We see it in Isaiah. God wanted to raise up Isaiah to be a mighty prophet, but first he gave Isaiah a vision of himself, high and exalted, of God in the heavens. And Isaiah's response was not, hey, all right, I'm chilling in heaven with God, and it feels right. <laughs> feels on par. It feels level. No, Isaiah's response is, woe to me. I am ruined for I am a man of unclean lips. Do you hear the bankruptcy of spirit? This acknowledgement, I don't have what it takes. I am needy before God. Mary, the mother of Jesus, 
When she was told that she would bear the Son of God, she sang, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. She's praising God, saying, Who am I? Why me? But thank you, Lord. Peter. I love Peter. Peter's one of my favorite characters in the Bible. The disciple Peter became the apostle Peter, he's so aggressive and assertive and self-confident and in many ways was, it was the quintessential worldly man. And Peter would boldly say stupid stuff throughout the Gospels because he believed in himself so much. But we see in Luke chapter 5 when Peter's confronted with who Jesus is, look at what he says. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Do you hear it? When it really comes down to it, he understands his, his need and what he brings spiritually. Nothing. Jesus is the greatest example of poverty in spirit. Not only is Jesus on this list of those poor in spirit, but for every single one of these beatitudes, these beautiful attitudes, we can look to Jesus as the example and we can look to Jesus for help. See, Jesus emptied himself so he could fill us with his undying love. He humbled himself to death so he could give us life. Jesus came to earth in poverty so we could be ushered in the riches of his kingdom. Now, as we close, I want you to see the necessity of poverty spirit. Because it's only the poor in spirit who enter the kingdom. Because it's only poverty of spirit. It's the only way into the kingdom. Our, I guess a question I would ask is, are you poor in spirit? Are you so aware of your spiritual bankruptcy that you come before God with open and empty hands? Have you done that before? It may seem counterintuitive, but the truth is you bring nothing to the table to make you right with God. But when you come to him that way, emptied of all self-assurance and self-righteousness, that's the right posture because he can take you empty. He can take you with nothing in your hands that you think earns you a thing. And that's when he can fill you with his righteousness and with his blessing. And it's not only the poor in spirit who receive salvation and entrance into the kingdom. It's only the poor in spirit who continue to grow in the Christian life. A few months ago, we looked at the church in Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3. And they thought that they outgrew the necessity for poverty of spirit. And this is what Jesus said to them. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Just like no one can be saved and enter the kingdom without poverty of spirit, no one can continue to grow apart from an ongoing poverty of spirit. A continued sense of spiritual need is the basis for ongoing spiritual blessing. Today... People think the answer to life is found in self. Jesus said, the blessed life is found in being poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Have you experienced poverty of spirit? Have you ever come to God that way? Are you continuing to experience poverty of spirit and coming to God that way? And do you see that it's your spiritual bankruptcy that leads you to Christ's riches? I pray that you would for the first time or that you would continue to as a follower of Jesus. May these beatitudes be the very pursuits of our lives. Let me pray for us. Jesus, I thank you so, so much for your mercy and your grace. I thank you, Jesus, for modeling for us poverty of spirit. And I thank you that poverty of spirit is a work of grace done by your spirit dwelling in us, that it's not all up to us, that you will work it through as we fix our gaze, find our satisfaction, find the good life in you, Jesus. Pray that over us today. In your son's name, amen.